Mr. President! Mr. President! Mr. President, are you going to delay? Are you encouraging the Israelis to delay invasion? Talking to the Israelis. Do you have you had a word on any additional hostage releases, sir? The 2024 Republican presidential primary field is taking shape. The battle lines are becoming clearer, and so is the field of candidates. Is the odds on favorites if you look at the polling still Trump versus Biden? That seems to be it, but it's just way too early to tell. I'm more angry now and I'm more committed now than I ever was. Big challenge for these candidates is going to be how do they navigate Donald Trump? And, and how do they navigate Ron DeSantis? You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. We have a late-breaking entry here yep. into the program today. Uh, the, the one and only Comfortably Smug has decided uh, to take upon himself uh, a showtime uh, that he can avail himself of. Well, hold on. Close the door, pal. He's, he's, uh, we decided we were going to start at the appointed time, and we are, are now starting at the appointed time. Just a good 31 minutes late. And there he is, at 31, 31 minutes late. Uh, welcome. Thanks, everyone, here for being on my show today. <laughs> Just a lovely entrance. We were. I've been trying to do this for, for a long time, and you finally made it happen. Well, I mean, here's the thing. is, So I basically spent all my time fighting for the conservative movement. <laughs> There's a lot on our plate right now. And I like to dig in, get my hands dirty, and get the job done. And so, you is know, that right? I place that first before anything else, as all our listeners know. Is that right? Well, okay. we we, we missed you uh, in today's interview. Yeah. Well, uh, I couldn't make that. I was fighting for the conservative movement. And, and yeah. yesterday's interview was well. uh, again. <laughs> couldn't make that. I was fighting for the conservative movement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it! I love it! All right. So, off the top, what you were watching with Joe Biden there was a clip of him basically refusing to answer the question about American hostages, which I have found extremely troubling. There are elements of what Biden has tried to do here over the last week that, you know, I think are things that you should be doing. I don't like the fact that he doesn't mention Iran in terms of the trouble that we're into in the Middle East. And I really don't like the fact that they have not talked more about American hostages. And that was a perfect example. He's ducking into a car Rather than answering that, that's the question you need to answer. Is it not? Isn't that his primary responsibility? Yeah, I mean, essentially the first job you have as commander in chief, as president of the United States, is ensuring the safety of Americans. And the fact that that is not even on his back burner, that, there, there's nothing he could be concerned less about than the safety of Americans. We saw what happened with the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. You know, he's too busy checking his watch, trying to blame everyone else yeah, for smug, problems he's smug, created. Smug, smug, smug. It is, it is the security of Americans, unless it conflicts with your vacation in Rehoboth Beach. Great, yeah, point. that's yeah. the thing. It's like that. That has you know that R and R time that comes first. Very yeah. important. That you take a walk on the beach. He was there all weekend. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually can't understand that. I can't understand. You that. would you would think, with a president who had all of his faculties. We know he's one who's quick to anger. <laughs> that there would be a staff that could say, "Hey, Mr. President, American hostages, you know, Gaza, Israel, a lot of stuff going on." Yeah. Sends a bad message for you to be on a beach 
in Rehoboth. Maybe now's not the time. Maybe it's not the time. Yeah. And but they can't. White, the White House isn't an uncomfortable place. I'm sure he can get a good night's sleep. I would yeah. hope so. I mean, so. if he wants to kick his feet up and watch football or something, he doesn't have to go to Rehoboth. It's a great point. But these Democrats, I, I've been shocked, not only by Democrats, but by the mainstream media, at the limited mention of the Americans who are currently being yes. held hostage. Barack Obama released this huge, long, medium post that's mostly about what Israel has to do differently next time. And it only mentions host the hostages once, and it's in the context of all the hostages, not just Americans. I don't know what it is about Democrats and about the left wing that just hates not just Israel, but also Americans and American uh, presence abroad. Millions of Americans earn and use credit card rewards. A few big box retailers want to take those rewards away, rewards we use on groceries and school supplies, the cash back to save on gas and grow our small businesses, and travel miles we use to make memories. The so-called Credit Card Competition Act would eliminate credit card rewards. No more travel miles, no more cash back. When lawmakers help mega retailers line their pockets, we pay for it. Tell your lawmaker to vote no on the big box bill. Visit handsoffmyrewards.com to take action today. It, it's sort of stunning. And look, I, I feel like I'm sort of deferential in terms of vacations and things like that. Like every time somebody's like, well, they should be back at work when Congress isn't in, in August. I'm like, no, they shouldn't. It's very good that they get one month. They should probably get multiple months when they're in town. It's not good for anyone as evidenced by the last month, which has been a complete embarrassment to the American people. But there are times when a president, you got to be locked in hard to argue that this is a time amongst any time in his presidency that he can't just be completely locked in. What's the situation room for if not staying in there when Americans are being held hostage by enemy terrorists? Yeah, this is a situation. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a situation. If, I, if there ever was a situation. Get in that room. It's named appropriately. Um, okay, so we've got a great show for you today. Thank you, Smug, for, for making it. Thank yeah. you for your service. Always happy to have you on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, we got a great guest, Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, he's here to talk a little bit about the Heritage Foundation, a little bit about his background, because, you know, a lot of people have heard about him and heard about the organization, didn't know a lot about him. So we got a little get to know him and sort of his philosophy on how you go about making policy around here and how we come together a little bit, because obviously Republicans have got an issue there. I think you'll find that very interesting. I hope you enjoyed uh, the the piece we put out yesterday um, with Brian Hook. Uh, we felt like in the midst of a discussion where you can't get anything redeemable out of the mainstream media at all, that you ought to talk to somebody who knows everything there is to know about Iran, about what's happening in Israel currently, how we got to here, how we didn't have this during the Trump administration. Was that pure luck? No, it turns out it wasn't. You'll hear all of that stuff in detail, in addition to his prescriptions for what you ought to do from here going forward with his words, not mine, a bunch of really bad choices. Right. And that's the interesting thing about foreign policy, depressing sometimes yeah. as it is, but rarely are there like clear black and white. This is the good choice. This is the bad choice. Sometimes it's a series of bad choices and worse choices. Yeah. And that's what makes it so 
interesting and also so depressing sometimes. Well, it's fascinating because, you know, it's easy for a lot of us to follow domestic policy because it impacts us directly and we have, you know, an obvious vested interest in it. And so we take it all sort of personally and you deal with that. You, you look at like the how cable news shows have handled this since the beginning mm-hmm. of cable news. And it basically is a relatability issue. You, you very rarely get a interesting sort of nuanced take from practitioners in the field on how you deal with foreign policy effectively. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who's done it arguably as well as anybody in the world Mm -hmm. um, and has the the proof out there for all to see. And for him to come in here and explain all this, if you haven't listened to it and you've got, you know, an hour of your time, go back and listen to it because I, I think it informs how I know I'm going to view things going forward and i imagine all of us yeah yeah no that's exactly right and i mean we we spent so much time on the issue at hand in the middle east we didn't even get into china and everything else so maybe we'll have them back to dive into those issues but like i i really think that having somebody like that on and and you know an expert in the area um, really is is important because you do, you do not get this on cable news mm-hmm. on any of the cable news stations and it's it's the kind of interview that you would expect in like a PBS frontline type situation that PBS frontline is never going to do because they're only going to put the regime mouthpieces on who are just going to say talking points and nothing's actually interesting it's just more talking points talking points for whatever Democrats want to want to be said. And um, it'll help give you a good view on what we're about to say and what we're going to do going forward, because I I totally agree with this guy and the way he approaches it. So you're going to hear a little bit. We'll talk about the anti-Israel protests, which continue to confound me in many, many ways. We're going to talk about the speaker's race, which also continues to confound me. And I imagine all of you. Uh, And then we'll do some some horse race stuff around here. Hey, and we'll have some fun along the way. But we do have a big announcement. And we haven't teased this, so it's just we're going to hit them cold with this one. Mm-hmm. Fellas. We're going to Miami. Yes. Huge, huge deal. We're going to Miami. You Miami. Re- yeah. So you recall at the beginning of the summer, we talked about how we were going to be sort of in partnership in some ways with the RNC and a number of different debate-like activities. We did the Milwaukee debate, the big game day style deal, and that was terrific. We are now going to Miami yes. for the third debate. And we're going to – look, first debate, I think everybody had a good time, enjoyed it. It was like a sort of kickoff deal. Spirits were high. Second debate, eh, the reviews weren't great. I can't help but think it wasn't – it was because the Ruthless Variety program wasn't now, there. We know why. We know why the reviews weren't great. If we were there – it would have been through the roof once again. Don't you think so? Mm-hmm. Smug, don't you think? And, and it's a tough venue. There were only, what, like 50 people allowed in the crowd, so. Yeah, and it sort of was a food fight as well, which sort of tough. A lot of crosstalk. So he's not going to take credit for you don't You don't think it was because of Ruthless? Yeah, I mean, we absolutely make a debate great, just our very presence, for right. sure. sure. But, but the fact that, you know, the, the crowd size isn't there for the energy to be fed off of, that also is a problem. Yeah, and we all know size matters. Well, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> so anyway. I think I think much much like Will Smith, we yes. are gonna party in the city where the heat is on. Yeah. <laughs> all night on the beach to the break of dawn. We're going to Miami. I knew you were gonna go there. I was waiting for somebody to go there. 
That is, that is, oh, that's perfect. So we're going to have a happy hour the night before the debate and then a, a live show, um, you know, adjacent to, to where the debate is going to be taking place. Great, great spot. We're going to have great setup. Um, and then we're going to have a debate watch party afterwards uh, at a bar. Tickets are 10 bucks. Uh, go and to, it gets you access to basically all of this. All of it. Sense, right? All of it. All of it. What for a 10 bucks. steal. It is a steal. What a steal. Um, so tickets are at RuthlessPodcast.com. You'll see it up there in the navigation. And that's right. That's just a regular it, domain. That's not even a subdomain. Not a subdomain, not a vanity URL. It's just going to be in there in the na- in the navigation. That's My, right there in the main page. The main page. <laughs> oh, that tells you how serious we are. It's very serious. Miami tickets in the navigation. Click buy if you can be there. Happy hour of the night before where we interact. We do interact quite vociferously. Uh, live show and then a debate party afterwards. Yeah, for ten bucks. For ten bones. Yeah, Golly. we're losing money on this. We're lo- no question, <laughs> uh, no question about it. But this is the life we've chosen, fellas. This is the life we've chosen. Uh, you got to get onto our YouTube channel if you haven't done that already. You can see a lot of the stuff that we talk about, uh, and better contextualizes it. Uh, particularly in this day and age when there's so much that's visual out there. Well, and and don't you want to see Smug coming into the studio late? Like, I, I mean, I can't wait to see how this looks on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is I'm never late. Uh, the star arrives when the show starts. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good. It's just so good. Uh, Michael, do we have any new merch? Um, no, but uh, the five-star review from last week about the onesie. Oh, yeah. For baby. You got that in the We're works? We're getting that. It's We're in the works. That. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, if you haven't checked out the new merch... From the last few weeks, you should probably check that out. I got to tell you, the sweatshirt, and the sweatshirt you're wearing right now, but that Senator sweatshirt, I mean, it's almost like my homeless clothes now. I wear it all the time. <laughs> it's comfortable. It, it, it's no, incredibly comfortable. No, no joke comfortable. Like, it's got that inside yeah. sort of soft, pillowy. Yeah. It's, it's good. Well, and Smug, I heard the short shorts were a big fan in your in your home. I haven't got my hands on those yet, but I'm sure they're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. All right, so let's start out with uh, some anti-Israel protests. So this confounds me, guys, in so many ways, and I I don't I don't know what to make of it. Uh, you flagged in yesterday's program a poll that you'd seen smash mm-hmm. about how there was a majority of people 18 to 24 yeah this is the harvard harris poll so it's a legit poll that showed that uh, um 51 percent of people in america aged 18 through 24 think that hamas is justified butchering israelis think about that mm-hmm. I, I don't think even know about that that that, that is again with that. that is that is a disease it, that is a disease of a of an entire demographic in our country. Mm-hmm. We talked to uh, we talked to Kevin uh, about it a little bit later in this show, actually, because he's got a background in education and um, and can and talks a little bit about why why it is that eighteen to twenty four year olds have gotten to this point, it's, and he's got a lot of really good reasons why. But it's just stunning. To I'm just me. not sure that there's anything that in in the last. Gosh, as long as I can remember, and that includes COVID and everything else, I don't remember anything that that more illuminates the problem that we have in higher education like this episode does. Because there's just not two sides to this story. 
And yet they feel strongly that there's not two sides and the one side that ought to be told is not told. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like a, the, the, I I, honestly, dude, I think the left sort of has a fetish when it comes to sort of deconstructing things. Like that's what critical race theory is. And all of this is like sort of looking at history as it happened and then deconstructing it and drawing a different conclusion based on your biases Mm -hmm. right and that's sort of what they do with everything it's like this like knee-jerk contrarian reaction to things that are just like morally usually morally clear and now it's always ambiguous that's just like sort of the way they operate and and that's i think that's very key to it and it's a really astute point because they need that ambiguity because ultimately their method is to dehumanize and allow the person that they're against to be destroyed by any means necessary. Like, oh, if I can classify this individual as an oppressor, then I can be able to support their children being murdered. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the bridge between getting them to the point that they want to be, which is absolute control by any means. And it's like a small piece of that was the cancel culture that they invented, essentially, which is destroy somebody's livelihood by any means necessary. And who cares? And then that also acts as a warning of like, well, you better be on our side. Like I saw the, the horrific video of a uh, elementary school in the San Francisco area where oh God, I saw the children were marching through the hallway chanting uh, from the river to the sea, mm. which is essentially, not even essentially, it's just point blank saying genocide of the Jewish people, kill everyone in Israel. That's mm. what that chant means, from the river to the sea. And these children are marching along saying it. And you notice some kids are like, this is kind of weird, but they've clearly been peer pressured into it. That's part and parcel of the whole thing is they have to be able to kowtow uh, the public and individuals to their side to be scared of like, you either go with this or you're next kind of thing, which is exactly the way cancel culture worked, which is how they tried to get their stranglehold on the culture of like, okay, you will see everything through the eyes of critical race theory or else. Dude, another thing that caught my attention yesterday, and I don't know if we have, this is, I'm throwing this on the guys here at the last minute, I don't know if we have audio of Karine Jean-Pierre um, at the podium yesterday, but someone asked her, what do you make of this rise in anti-Semitism? And do you know what she said in response? We're not seeing any real threats here. We don't have any credible evidence of credible threats. Uh, but the rise of Islamophobia is something that we're worried about. And it's like... It's just... It, that's it right there. I want to tip this table over. Yeah. I mean, I'm breaking things. Yeah. I'm breaking... I'm, I'm breaking <laughs> things. I mean, it's just... It's so unbelievable. Let me just read you from the New York Post yesterday. Thousands of protesters demanding eradication of Israel and clashed with NYPD. Thousands of anti-Israel protesters clashed with police Saturday night after they refused to vacate the Bay Bridge Street that they had flooded for hours. The flood of Brooklyn for Palestine demonstration uh, devolved into chaos uh, as night fell, with protesters completely shutting down traffic, screaming at police, and lighting small fires in the middle of the roadway. The aggressive protesters dug their heels in on the grounds uh, when the NYPD tried to push them out of 72nd Street and 5th Avenue, where 5,000 ralliers converged earlier in the day to demand the United States withdraw support from its closest ally in the Middle East. Officers began plucking individuals out of a massive crowd, as well uh, as from the inside of one of the pickup-carrying ralliers, uh, a, a Palestinian flag-waving horde, in an effort to quell the out-of-control rally. Okay. We're not seeing that? 
Are we not? This is we're this, not seeing that. This is what I don't understand. Their chants are from the river to the sea. Their chants are not like remove Hamas and install a government that is competent that doesn't kill our Palestinian people. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that Brian Hook talked about yesterday was all of the steps that the Trump administration took to to reshape. Pal- uh, life for Palestinians to provide to provide f- for them in a way that Hamas simply was not. This is a terrorist organization that will absolutely be torn down beyond the studs because of what they've done to innocent Israelis, and nobody deserves it more. And what I don't understand are all these people marching for Hamas. They butchered people while they were sleeping. Is, and it, we not, talk- is it not evident that there's now like proof video print people on the ground like all the they've been stealing united nations supplies they've been international community has been trying to provide relief efforts to people from gaza hamas steals them and if they can't make them into weapons they use them for themselves they've not been been distributing that there was which coincides well with the decades-long practice of taking things like water systems that israel is is installing and turning them into rockets the thing that encapsulated it for me and i think you guys probably saw this at the beginning of when hamas took all these hostages into gaza was the photo of the hostage who i believe was wounded was laying back in the dirt on sandbags and the sandbag said you know from the people of japan yeah and it's like that's what this that's what they do when with the aid Right. Hamas steals it. Right. And you know what I don't hear from these guys like the L.A. Times columnist who has been pushing all of these like, oh, we need to correct the record of what's oh, happening. He's an investigative reporter. He's not a columnist. You, you, this guy's supposed to be an arbiter of actual truth. You know what you don't hear from them is like, oh, Hamas is giving regular people a bad time. They're not correcting the record on that. Right. They're just trying to run over Jews just like Hamas did. And it is absolutely disgusting. It's completely absurd. You've got about 100,000 protesters um, join pro-Palestinian march throughout London. And now we know that as bad a problem as we might have here in the United States and Europe, it's like a thousand times worse. This is according to Yahoo News. About 100,000 people joined a pro-Palestinian demonstration in central London on Saturday, marching through the British capital to demand immediate ceasefire in Gaza following the Hamas attacks on Israel two weeks ago, chanting Free Palestine. Holding banners and waving Palestinian flags, the protesters moved through London before massing at Downing Street, the official residence of the prime minister, uh, and police estimated 100,000 people had taken part in the march. Um, We're doing something wrong in information flow here, guys. Like, this is, is, there's there's many, many issues and some of it in Europe is immigration related, assimilation related, but information flow related. Because I just don't, I fundamentally don't believe that there are hundreds of thousands of evil people that are protesting things. I mean, I do. I, I, I think it's not an information issue. I think at this point, the world has witnessed these horrors firsthand um, there was an event recently where I think it was over 100 members of the press 
yeah. were brought into right. a room and they were shown. These are from GoPros that these terrorists were taking themselves of killing people. Right. And reveling po- in the murder. It. They were posting it to their Telegram channels. Exactly. I mean, this is firsthand from the terrorists themselves of them gleefully murdering people. And there was a video that they were shown where uh, the terrorist not only killed an elderly woman, he took his phone and then he put his mother, called his mother using the phone on speakerphone said, I've killed 10 Jews today, mom. I'm calling you from one of the phones of the dead Jews. And she's like, good luck, son. You're making me proud. So this is way beyond any like, it's not like you can inform that mother of, well, you see, here's the reasons why Hamas is actually responsible for all the issues that you're facing. You can't explain that because this is hatred in its many forms. This is uh, uh, anti-Semitism in the case that you're seeing here on the, on the video. And it's an example of the modern left worldwide yeah, of that, what you're seeing. That NGO smug that I think you're referencing there that that collected all of that evidence and everything. There was also one thing I saw that was particularly disgusting. They had, you know, there were charred remains and uh, and they had to do an MRI scan to figure out what, what they were seeing because it was basically just looks like ash a lump mm-hmm. of ash and it was the body of a woman grown woman and a baby that had been wired together and burned alive oh you know two two skele- skeletons and only found through mri i mean like how do you negotiate with that you don't it's, <laughs> it, you don't it's absolute savagery yeah. and you need to eliminate it Hamas does not belong in any polite conversation. The idea that people are marching and supporting Hamas is simply disgusting. And to your point about information flow, there are like levers of government, levers of official society that are unfortunately participating in this like Mm -hmm. stopping of information. So I don't know if you guys saw this, but Libs of TikTok, one of the one of the big accounts that, that a lot of folks who listen to this follow reported yesterday that there were some middle schoolers in a California oh, yeah, in I a California what school. Smug was talking about, right? Well, th- these are these are kids in a Jew- Jewish middle schoolers who were basically like bullied by these yeah, this other was, kids. Yeah. And they were told not to talk about it. Huh. I mean, it's just it the whole thing is completely disgusting. There's an important foreign policy debate happening here. But before you think that this is something that's not happening in your back door and something not happening in your community, look around a little bit because it is. And two, listen to that interview we did yesterday. Just it's worth your time. Listen to it. You can understand immediately why it is that the American security in and of itself is threatened by every single thing that we just discussed. And it's happening all over the place. So anyway... We're going to keep an eye on the on how all that's playing out. There's been a uh, a request made by the Biden administration that loops in a whole bunch of international funding. Ukraine is involved in this. Israel is involved in this. Taiwan is involved in this. Uh, there's also domestic issues like border security involved in this. What before I, we talk about that, I think. Like, this is one of those things that would have been super helpful to know yesterday, right? I mean, and I mean that metaphorically. I mean, these are things that when you come into an administration, you ought to lay out, not rather than just being reactive to world events. 
And it's something that the Trump administration did. And I think there's a number of Republicans that view the world the same way. You got to have a global strategy for chaos. Mm-hmm. You got to have it. And if you if you don't have it, then you're susceptible to whatever irrational actor makes a move. And now you're pulled into things that maybe you weren't ready for because you didn't prepare for it. Mm-hmm. And this is a perfect example of that, right? Is that you've got Iran that's funded Hezbollah, funded Hamas. They're clearly timing up this particular attack in large part to dissuade an agreement between Israel and Saudi that, that was probably instrumental, it, if it would have ever been enacted, in decentralizing the power structure of the Arab world in terms of just being anti-Jewish, anti-American, anti-Western. And they knew what they were doing. And so now that they've done this, they've radical back re-radicalized a whole bunch of Arab countries. They got to the point where you got Arab countries that aren't talking to Americans. You've got staging grounds in places like Syria where there are potential soldiers to go do battle with both Israelis and then, God forbid, Americans at some point. And we're just sitting there. We're just sitting there. You know, and it's all sort of a downstream effect from what we were doing in Afghanistan. But the fact of the matter is we've always had these problems. We've just minded the store for the last four years prior to the Biden administration. And for eight years, we didn't mind the store at all during the Obama administration. Taiwan, that's another perfect example. Is that just a problem now that we got off out of Afghanistan? Everybody thinks we're a bunch of pussies. Yeah, it is. That's why you got to mind the store all the way through on stuff like that. And the Ukraine-Russian thing, I'll say what you will. There's some good interviews on that that happened over the weekend. You know, I'm partial. McConnell was out there doing his thing. Not everybody's going to agree with his point of view on how important Ukraine is to this larger war and the message it sends to President Xi in China and the message it sends to Iran or whatever else. But this is stuff you got to pay attention to. Because like it or not, not only your tax dollars are going to be involved, most of us know people who are either either in theater or going to be a part of some kind of in-theater deal that is entirely reliant on the moves of your rational actors rather than an American strategy that put them there. And that I've got a huge problem with, guys. I just do. And and like Hook said yesterday, there's not a lot of good choices now. You're down now that you didn't drive an agenda, they drove it upon you. You got a bunch of bad choices and there's nothing that comes easy and everybody's going to want to forget about this stuff in two weeks. You can't. Yeah. It turns out when you try to unfreeze $6 billion for the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world, you kind of lose control in the situation. You kind of lose control. You know, you kind of lose control. Yeah. I mean, it's just, Hmm. it's, well, it's it's a problem that is like washed up on our uh, doorstep over and over and over again for the last who knows how many years in the form of illegal immigration our border on the south is open our Mm -hmm. border on the north is open hamas hezbollah people from terrible terrorist organizations are coming over our border and democrats will not do anything about it everybody talks about this all the time becomes like a political ping pong wherever it's just like talking points that people just turn their brains off to it's reality yeah and it has to be stopped and if democrats do not work with this republic with this republican majority in the house and i know that they have their problems and we're going to be talking about that a little bit later but if 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 we cannot not only fund the effort 
to shut down the border, but also change policy that allows these terrorists to cross over unabated, we, we, are, we are doomed. Yeah, yep. And pay attention in particular to the border security component to this, because I think that is an element of a victory. Uh, as we talk about in our interview today, there are pieces of what need to happen for the American people in the secret like sort of security of the American people that need to be accomplished right now. Mm. And if it's a part of a global strategy, fine. But that needs to be a part of it, 100%. All right, let's go to the speaker's race. Uh, who's your dude? Who's your guy from Georgia that you've been... Uh, Mike Collins. Yeah, this guy's been just at it, hasn't yeah. he? I mean, he's got a great message. It seems to be catching on big time. Uh, and earlier uh, on Monday... A lot of folks have said that they would be supporting him for speaker. <laughs> he, he fires out a tweet uh, where he says, fresh off the printer, we'll be hitting the halls, our movement, our time. And it says, Mike Collins, my platform for speaker of the house. Mm. Now, I want to outline this because I think it's important. Okay. It says, house must work longer hours than UAW. All 12 appropriation bills must be passed out of committee before August recess or no recess. Brilliant. Duncan like this one. Car mines for dinner at every conference. <laughs> Past term limits. Press releases out. Memes in. Another good policy position. Yeah. Wider parking spaces to fit up to 18 wheels. Great point. No omnibuses, minibuses, or short buses. I mean, he's <laughs> done with all of them. No money to Ukraine until southern border is secured. Just like you were pointing out, Holmes. A chicken in every pot. No more having to listen to Frank Luntz at retreats. And no secret side deals. I mean, it's going to be hard for him to find a lot of well, resistance to that. I got to be honest. The guy's hitting a lot of greatest tits for Boy, me. Well, he's playing playing a lot of my notes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's crushing it. I mean, so, all right. So this guy, for those of you who haven't been following along online... Mike Collins is not a household name by any stretch of the imagination. He's a congressman from Georgia. But during this entire speaker's debacle, he's the one guy who's been having some fun online. Yeah. And he's been posting memes and he's been like touting his sort of pseudo candidacy for the speakership. And what started is a hilarious joke where he says, you know, basically like, don't tell my communications director that this is happening. She's yeah. going to be very upset. Uh, has turned into like, that yeah can this man meme himself into the speaker's and i was like "Mm, i'm not sure i can't (laughs) right yeah because like you look at some of this other so so what's happening realistically in this deal is that there are now like dozens of people who've said well by god i've seen what's happened to this disgust body and it is time for me to lead i'm going to go out and seek the votes of my colleagues and I think I can unite them all. And uh, and that starts with uh, uh, the whip, Tom Emmer, been on this show, friend of the program. Uh, uh, Vice Chair Mike Johnson, I don't think we've had Mike on, have we? No, but I've heard good things about him from yeah, some I've... of our other conservative media types. Uh, Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, I've heard of him. Byron Donalds, absolutely heard of him. Pete Sessions, I'm pretty sure we've had him on before. Uh, Jack Bergman, of uh, Michigan, Austin Scott. He ran uh, once before. I didn't know who he was then, and I don't know who he's now is now. Dan Muser. I didn't know who this guy was until he showed up on the TV the other day. A handsome individual. Handsome. Yeah. Remember he had that great head of hair. Oh yeah. Yeah. We we respect a good flow on we the do. variety program, and it's like that's I, why we love Doug Burgum. That's exactly right. We expect a good we expect good hair out of our, our of our representation, and that's what he's got going. And then Gary Palmer. I'll tell you, there's like five or six guys here 
who if they were literally dating Taylor Swift, we still wouldn't care what they were doing. Oh, come on. No, I'm serious. Why? Because this is just not a serious thing. Like, it, I think I still don't care about Kelsey. But, like, that's neither here or there. No, well, you and I don't, but the English-speaking world seems to. It's yeah. like you can't have it's an NFL psyop. football game without Taylor Swift being involved. Because that's a psyop. And, and I, I, I agree that, you know, there's a lot of folks here who are running who aren't very widely known, who who knows what kind of a chance they are. But chaos is a ladder, and I think Mike Collins is the man for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> He's shown that, like— I, I've loved. Might the, be the rare endorsement. I don't. We don't get a lot of those. Th- throughout the whole absurd process that we've been through. He's like, another day. I'm gonna go in. I'm gonna vote for Jim Jordan. We're gonna get nothing accomplished. This is ridiculous. The yeah. people of Georgia deserve better. <laughs> you know, like he's the most. But I do appreciate normal it. person I, there. What I'm with you, smug. Because what I appreciate about it is like it's the same tactic we would take as you know the variety program. It's like if you don't laugh, you're gonna cry. Totally. You know, when stuff just gets like this depressing, you got to find some humor in it. Otherwise, you're going to go crazy in politics. So I just I respect the game. And this dude's got it. Yeah. I mean, all the great memes. He had the Simpsons meme. He had the Trump in the interview meme. Yeah. And it's all yeah. him. It's not Staffer. There was an in, uh, interview done with the AJC where they confirmed, yeah, this dude's just firing him off himself. Well, so, so, dropping how, bangers. How is he making the memes? Do you think he just goes to Meme Generator and he's like, I, I got a banger to drop? Yeah. That's so <laughs> tight. Man, he's cool. Hey, <laughs> hey Wolf, we got to get Collins on here. Yeah. All right? Like, sooner the better. I want to talk to that guy because this is, he clearly has a sense of humor. Um, but meanwhile, we're like rudderless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is it. Not for the bad news. It doesn't seem like there's <laughs> it doesn't seem like there's any sense of urgency to the whole thing. And what worries me is like, you know, the conference gets in a room and they're like, All right, we're gonna have like car mines, we're gonna like vote ten more times, accomplish nothing, and it's like summer camp. <laughs> you know? And it's like we're all gonna make friends and, and and have car mines and maybe some pizza and tell campfire stories and Crisscross applesauce and still don't have a speaker. <laughs> well, and, they, and they, over the weekend, they were yelling at each other something fierce. Yeah. And everybody now at this point, it's widely reported that the eight that voted against McCarthy are like widely despised. I mean, internally, I mean, you can, it has become you can, so badly. You can see why. That they, they offered a letter saying like, hey, if you, we'll vote for a consensus candidate, uh, you can censure us or expel us if you'd like. Expelling, by the way, would make you a minority. So that, like, the, yeah, that, that the speaker thing that was that. I don't know if they did the math on that. I don't know that they've done the math at all. But they're feeling the heat as well they should because this is now a situation where we're what three weeks in. Are we three weeks? You know, uh, right, and it's probably going to go even longer. When you I say mean, that, it, it gives me an idea. When you say they're feeling the heat. Why not put the Republican conference in a room? All the paper markers they need to have as many ballots as they need. You lock the door. There's no food or water. Every hour, the temperature goes up by one degree. (laughs) (laughs) They'll get a speaker. The thing is, is they work for us, and they're showing us that they don't give a damn. Mm. Get your job done. Get your job done. Because everyone else in America is going out and doing their job every day. Why the hell aren't the people we sent to represent us? And it's like... All right. I disagree with getting rid of Kevin McCarthy. I think I've made that quite clear. But at the very least, if you're going to do it, like have a plan and execute that thing so we can get back to the work of the people. You know what I mean? Well, it's the point that Ron DeSantis made. He said, I'm no fan of Kevin McCarthy. I voted against him before, but I don't understand how these guys can go about doing this without a plan to replace him. 
DeSantis said that at the time, and he was the one of the, I think, the only presidential candidate who was like even open to the idea of Kevin McCarthy leaving. And he was like, I still am not comfortable with what they're doing because they don't have a plan here. It was evident to everybody in the world right. that they didn't have any plan to deal with this. And now you've got world events that make right. it seem so small and so right. dumb, and they still can't come to a conclusion. Right, and we also have opportunity. I mean, there has been no better opportunity for Republicans to get some sort of a win on the border, and there's been no greater need for a win on the border to build the security for the border than, like, right now. And they have they have leverage but they don't have the ability to use it because they're a mess. Yeah. I mean, this is a moment where we've called out how many horrible things this Biden administration has done, how many mistakes they've made, how stupid they've been over the past couple of weeks. But we have no leader for the Republican conference, no speaker that can go out and say, I am shocked that the president is on vacation. Right. Because rightfully so, every Democrat, every member of the press can say, how are you clowns trying to say that Someone else is making a mistake. You can't even pick a leader for your own team. Yeah. Your yeah. team's got no captain. It's, I mean, it's a problem that we have in the conservative movement. And look, I mean, I want the most conservative outcome that is possible, that is realistically, realistically can happen. But the problem too often is like we make perfect the enemy of the good and everybody strives for perfection all the time and it's 100% or 0%. Yeah. And so we end up with nothing. And so then we don't actually get close to accomplishing any of our goals. I mean, like um, you were talking about McConnell earlier. It's like McConnell has to lead a conference that has everybody from Susan Collins to Ted Cruz in it. Yeah. Like not everybody is as conservative as us in this room or the people listening to this show, but they do vote. And sometimes they vote for people who are more moderate and they're going to be in your conference, too. And leadership means you have to find the consensus among that those disparate views in your party. Like that's what leadership is, folks. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. that's that is political reality. And if we can't find a speaker that can do all of those things, then we're not going to have a speaker. So Mike Collins. So, so then, what was the point? I think so. Mike Collins. It's Mike it is. Collins. I think so. We've had it's enough. It's meme magic. It's meme time. magic. It's time for Mike Collins. Let's just meme this thing all the way through. How do we get involved? Let's get involved with. Let's get this guy. Can First you, of all, we need. He needs to come on and, and give us like the full pitch before we give the endorsement. Can you imagine like the floor charts? Oh, be, like next level meme magic. <laughs> yeah, and imagine unleashing this guy on the Dems. That'd be good. Tip of the spear. It'd we should, we got to do it. All right, you guys want a little horse race action? Sure, always. We do this on Thursdays, but we're going to do it today. Uh, because it's become evident. You so you heard with our interview last week of Tim Scott. Top of mind, not only for Tim Scott, but for us and all of you listening, is is this field going to winnow down? Is there going to be a someone that emerges from this field to take on Donald Trump? We now already know Donald Trump's basically got the presidential version of a bye week, mm -hmm. right? He, he's, he's basically earned the free pass. Mm -hmm. And the question is whether or not you get somebody out of the rest of the field that's going to take him on in a very serious way, either one-on-one -on -one or, you know, with a handful of others. And because as of right now, it's not going to happen, mm -hmm. right? They're splitting 15% five ways. <laughs> it's just never going to work. So a big part of that is like, who's in that second place? And we, it, everybody thought from the very beginning it was going to be Ron DeSantis. And it was, and it kind of still is. But Nikki Haley's made a move here in the last two months, starting with that Milwaukee debate, to be in that conversation in several of these states and nationally. 
And so this is the thing that's heating up now. It's the DeSantis Nikki Haley feud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, it was Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, it was DeSantis and Ramaswamy or Christie. Now it's like you're kind of dealing with the two people that are sitting on top of that other category. Mm-hmm. And this is from ABC. A Haley dinged DeSantis on Saturday for his description of her remarks about the Gaza situation. You know, the first thing I'll say is God bless Ron DeSantis because he continues to try to bring up this refugee situation. He said that I want to make Gazan refugees. I've never said that. And he said uh, on an ad on TV, and I'll tell you from CNN to Newsmax, that all I have said in that in that ad, all he said that in, in that ad is a lie. Uh, she said at a, a town hall Saturday in Central College in Pella, uh, Iowa. So this has become a big deal. And it's not just you heard Tim Scott hit, hit her on this, too. Uh, the ad that was released by Never Back Down, that's the Super PAC. Mm-hmm. Um, DeSantis Super PAC. Yeah. Uh, it features Haley in 2017 defending sending assistance to people in West Bank and Gaza alongside a 2023 clip of her saying of the prospect of the United States accepting Gazan refugees. That is not the role of the U.S. to do that. I've always said that, and I'll continue to say that. Okay. You want the truth. So the truth is that during, and you heard this from Brian Hook, Mm -hmm. during the Trump administration, they had an extremely sophisticated view of the Middle East in that uh, I think what his words were, no better friend. No no worse enemy. Worse enemy. Yeah. And that's what they basically executed. And by the no better friend piece of it, it wasn't just standing by Israel. It was trying to show uh, Islamic leaders in the region that they would be there for humanitarian purposes for these people, provided you chose a different way Mm -hmm. than Hamas. And they'd executed it. And that's basically what she was talking about at that time. Now, granted, in the context of the current environment, those words can come back to haunt you mm-hmm. in a very big way. It makes her seem as though she is open to having refugees that voted for Hamas into the United States. We've seen how this has worked before. Frankly, you saw it in New York City in the first segment that we talked about. Right. You can see it in Minneapolis right now with the Somali res- refugees that are basically out. I mean, huge pro-Palestinian uh, uh demonstrations over the weekend like tormenting elderly people in their cars yeah right like that is not something that anyone on the conservative side of the aisle ought to be advocating and no country in the middle east is willing to take yeah egypt says hell no egypt says hell no so if that was your position that you ought to bring gaza refugees to the united states that's a dead letter in a republican primary probably a dead letter in a general electorate She's saying that's not her position, and she stated what her position is, and they're kind of using these clips during a different era of time to, to portray it as that. Now, I think we're all big boys in politics. Like, anything is worth litigating. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I don't think the ad's unfair. I think those are issues that she should have to try to defend. Um, I'm sure it's going to come up at the debate. It's yeah. definitely coming up. It's going to be fireworks. Debate. And I think... I mean, I think what he he will say is it represents like sort of a naive worldview. Yeah. And um, what she'll say, I don't know what she'll say, but, you know, is that you get more flies with honey than vinegar. And part of diplomacy is demonstrating to the Arab world that we can be a responsible, fair actor in the region. You don't accomplish things like the Abraham Accords without that. 
Yes. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and I think there's good there's good arguments on both sides of that. I think it's a fair argument, one they should have. See, that's the kind of thing that I want in this debate yeah. in Miami. I want that debate, and I want to have that conversation. It's not mm-hmm. it's not enough for him or for her to just go up against Vivek, where she basically just slams him in a locker and twists the code. Yeah. Uh, like they need to have a, a real serious debate about these things because I don't think there's any, maybe a, I don't know. I, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I don't think there's a candidate that believes you ought to have Gaza refugees in the United States. Have you heard anybody say that? No. And I, I think, you know, as the field continues to be winnowed, there's no candidate that could make it onto a stage that would have agreed anything like that. Um, I think there's going to be a sense of urgency for sure at this debate. You I know, agree. Th- this discussion of DeSantis going after Haley, I think, is a recognition of how she's been surging in the polls. Um, there was a really good article um, in uh, Politico this weekend. Um, what's her name? Something Allison wrote. Natalie uh, Allison. Nat- Natalie Allison wrote. Politico? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About um, Tim Scott's poll numbers have started to dwindle, and it seems like Haley in South Carolina is also surging and, and is pretty much soaking up all the support there. So anyone on that stage is going to have to start seeing this as kind of like, I need to get you know the last ticket out of town. Yeah, I think or, it's, or it's it's a wrap. I think it's I think you're exactly right. And, and, t- I, and Tim Scott admitted as much on in the in the show, which which I thought was kind of newsy. Like you know, he was very open eyed about what he considers the threshold of viability in in Iowa. Yeah, and further had a very different take than like a John Kasich in 2016, in that he, he said it was important to him mm-hmm. that we did winnow the field. Like Kasich, it didn't matter. Like, as long as he's paying his consultants, he would run to the end. It doesn't matter. For oh, the uh, who place who was his consultant again? The Weaver Man Chanty. Oh, uh, John Weaver. Yeah, uh, Weaver oh, Man the Chanty. Lincoln Project. That's mm-hmm. right. Ah, oh, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Strange. Yeah, it's, way, it's wild how that happened. <laughs> wild it's almost as if they didn't have the republican party at heart i don't know i don't know i don't know but you see this with a number of candidates now that tim scott uh is readjusting his strategy a little bit to try to make a big play in iowa uh mike pence another one we've had in the program good friend of the program one of the world's most decent human beings you'll ever meet and if you ever have the pleasure of meeting him you will come away with that exact same sentiment he is just a genuinely good man this candidacy at this point looks tough it looks like it's getting pretty rough he's had a number uh there was a political story about how he was doing a, an event at a pizza parlor with like 15 people right you get some of that on campaign so i just i'm not going to throw that under the bus and we've been at it we've been in the middle of places with you know 500 people with mike pence so it is take it for what it's worth but the point is is it doesn't look like it's a point where he's going to be competing to win in iowa so if you if one if you're not on the debate stage in Miami, you got to make a call. Like, what's the comeback by December one that gets you viable for any pre caucus debate? Two, if you're not there and you're soaking up five, six, seven percent, like what are you doing just to make sure that this is just going to be a status quo election? Or are you actually going to have a choice? And does that matter to you? For somebody like Mike Pence, I know that matters. Mm-hmm. I know that he cares deeply about what this country looks like uh, a year and a half from now. For Tim Scott, I think that's true, too, because we had that interview. Um, but you start looking down at each one of these candidates, and I think what you said is exactly right. 
what do you have in Miami for us? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have something significant for us in Miami, it might be time to look at how we support people who do. Mm -hmm. Because every, I don't care if you support Trump or not. You ought to believe in having a Republican party that had a real choice. Because if it has a real choice in 2024, it means that you have a united post-primary. Yep, right, right. That's the whole thing. And it's why I've been so frustrated that Trump hasn't been willing to actually get on the debate stage because, number one, the debate is good. We should air out all of our grievances. It's festivus right. in every one of these debates. That's, that's healthy for the party to do, and it helps us have the best path forward. And to your point, that's how you unify after a primary is everybody feels like they had the chance to be heard. Exactly. And it, you lose that. If, you, if it's not everybody on stage. You get what you've got in the House Representatives right now. Yeah. Where there's a disparate bunch of people with no real leader that mm -hmm. are sort of casting about and airing grievances in real time when you have to be governing. If you have an election that sort of like brings everybody in on that and everybody can have their say, then going forward, you know it's a much, much better alternative to a liberal, progressive, democratic view of America. So you got to just pull together mm -hmm. and i think that's the only way that we do it so we're going to be pushing for that here on the program we're going to be pushing for it um all right so we got some interesting other stories here to talk about did you guys see this thing about ghosts no no, no not at all mm -hmm. i'm sort of fascinated because we got a real difference of opinion on the variety program about uh extraterrestrials sure and in terms of you mean some who think about it and some who don't <laughs> that too that too smash but i you know like some of us believe in aliens some of us don't yeah i'm so, just saying some of us watch football some of us watch okay i watch alien football shows. too so, so, not so. a lot not a lot of good news happened for me this weekend trust me i watched lots of football i got very depressed <laughs> the colts had the game stolen from them Literally, a crime was committed on national television. And then you switch to the X Files. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, truth is out there. Star Trek and your pud and your paw. I've That's never the way that works. Look, I've got my red lines. Okay, <laughs> Star Trek. I don't go go full full nerd. I've got a red line. Okay, all right. That's fair. That's fair. I'll respect. And that. also, like, okay, yeah. one more thing. Yeah. Uh, yes. It works. Dis Disney Disney Plus. How many fucking wars in the stars am I supposed to care about? <laughs> There's just so much Star Wars stuff they've put out there. They just like take the IP and they just recycle it, recycle it, recycle it, recycle it. How much shit am I supposed to care about? How many movies have they made? Do we know? You would know. It's not just the movies. Now it's the shows. And then there's shows after the shows. And it's like, yeah. I, I, mean, I wouldn't watch any of it. I cancel Disney. That's It's a horrible thing. They're basically just trying to program kids into hating this country i wouldn't support that company they've gone completely off the rocker like they're doing this uh snow white and the seven dwarfs and the actress they have is a latino lady who basically comes out and says that well you know the the 1930s cartoon is outdated and it sucks and this company's got a problem with sexism and so we're gonna fix that with this movie they don't even have seven dwarfs because dwarves <laughs> are now like illegal or something right so it's just like seven magical woodland creatures, and they all just look like homeless people from San Francisco. Woodland creatures. Woodland creatures. They, they, direct, they call them magical woodland creatures. It's just homeless guys. Are they of normal height and weight? Yeah, they're just normal dudes dressed like they're homeless. So Wait, Seriously? I'm dead serious. This is this is what this company is doing to this country. Well, imagine the dwarf community seriously underrepresented. The one booking that they've got locked over the years has been the seven dwarves. I hear, I hear you, Smug, on Disney. 
like my four-year-old loves Moana, loves like Toy Story, it loves like Ratatouille, lo- loves those things. But I saw an ad, I think Daily Wire is coming out with yeah. children's yeah. programming. Like I just need somewhere else to have some some content. My understanding if that you is build it, they will come. It's basically like cartoons with like zero political right. message. Like it could be it, you'd think this cartoon could be either you know from 50 years ago. It's the same, you know, message. It's yeah. no bullshit. It's I, just a, it's sad that that's a radical idea of like, oh, my kids can watch something that like isn't politically motivated. Yeah. I, I, like, how do I find this? That's horrific. I pay money for Smug to just sit there in like a, a, a chair with a book and like Andrew Dice Clay style, just read just <laughs> offensive stuff <laughs> at this point. Because it, it can't be worse. It can't be worse. Uh, I mean, I mean, honestly, you get your kids, you get them to watch World War II documentaries. So okay, quality programming. It's, it's time like, to see the world course, for what it is, younger. The, the <laughs> World War II documentaries. Yeah, that's what I Have grew you up ever on. met a child, Smug? Yeah. I mean, listen, we watched nothing but documentaries okay. when I was a kid. You think yes. I'm watching Disney movies? Hell no. Yeah, Hell no. Smug was reading War and Peace at four years old. <laughs> I, I was, Sun Tzu's Art of War. <laughs> and that's what prepped him to fight every day for the conservative movement. <laughs> <laughs> back to the back to the ghosts though. Let's get back. Yeah, to the no, ghosts. back to the ghosts. So you'll be happy to know that uh, McDaniel has resurrected Study Finds. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Study Finds, which, mm-hmm. as you know, is a, this program undoubtedly is the number one traffic citation source. Yeah. traffic source yeah. for Study Finds. Study Finds has found out that uh, most haunted places in America and the five spookiest U.S. destinations, according to Fright fans. Hmm. This is a thing, evidently. According to a study, 63% of Americans believe the paranormal in some form or another. Most common among study participants was the belief in ghosts, 57%. And a third, 35%, uh, said they even felt an unexplained ghostly presence in their homes. Uh, You guys got any of that? This is all fake. In Halloween night, I guess there are a lot of ghosts running around the neighborhood. What? So you see him then, uh, and then the day after Halloween, you don't see him. <laughs> Weird. Just very. I love. I love. Ashbrook just gives a very matter of fact. Okay. <laughs> there's uh, there's there's pillow pillow sacks overheads, uh, reminiscent of of ghosts, and then they they run they, they they knock on your door, they say trick or treat, you give them candy, <laughs> and then you don't see them again until the following October. What do you know? You're you're gonna get haunted like a motherfucker. I, I wonder. Do, <laughs> I, I wonder if kids are even gonna do trick or treating because every time I turn on the news, it's all the kids just running into stores and stealing shit for free. So why would they even put in the effort? I mean, well, they wear their masks. That's for sure. They well, go to the store say, wearing their masks. I will say, let's morph it into the, that conversation for a second. If there are teenagers that come to your door, what's your move? What's your move? So I'll tell you, as someone with experience Masked in this, teenagers. the teenagers don't usually come until the end of the night. Yeah, and right. So you don't. So it's like nine o'clock. You, you may not have much candy left, and you're sort of you've run out of patience for the whole scene. And so, if a group of teenagers comes to my door at the end of the night, I'm going to dump the rest of the yeah. basket into their pillowcase, and I'm going to walk in, lock the door, and turn off the light. Yeah, no, I'm actually with Ashbrook on this. Is like. It saves you from yourself. You leave it out there. You, it saves you. Or from you yourself. could leave it out there because that's... because if that candy comes back in, I'm going to be eating it over the course of the next totally. two or three weeks. Yeah. So I'm grateful for the teens at the end of the night. You just got to pay that ransom. Otherwise, you know, maybe right. you get some eggs, you get some toilet paper. But if you leave the candy out there, it will it'll go away. Don't negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> 
Be prepared to return Smug. fire. Be like, you look Smug. a bit old. You look a bit long in the tooth. Smug has more child advice. Yeah. I mean, are you kidding me? All these kids, they're monsters now. You saw the polling. <laughs> they're absolute monsters. They side with terrorists. You are going to be they're the asking worst for neighbor. <laughs> you know, if they strike me as if they're a teenager, you get off my yard. We got a gun and give me a reason. <laughs> <laughs> we would have, when I was in college, we rented a house with uh, Arizona State and Tempe. There's a suburban area there. And mm. we rented a house because we got kicked out of our fraternity. Our fr- <laughs> I, I should say the, ki- the fraternity got kicked out of the campus. Yeah. For reasons that we'll do a special show on <laughs> yeah. at some point way down the future after I've cashed out. Anyway, uh, the the this neighborhood would have you know your your youngsters, and we would like happily participate as college kids, giving them candy and like uh, enjoying it and making their night a little better. Give them a laugh or two. Give the parents a cocktail. We enjoyed it. Hmm. Then late at night, you get like not late, but like nine nine thirty. You'd start to get like the fifteen sixteen year olds out there. Mm-hmm. Which by the way, you have absolutely no business being out trick or treating yeah. if you're over the None. age of thirteen max. Yeah. Max. Uh, and my buddy Biff would, <laughs> he'd open the door like basically the same. And we didn't have the same kind of concerns you do now that you're going to get like freaking full home jacked. Yeah, but yeah. he'd open the door and he would just give him like a, a, a can of Campbell's soup <laughs> or like a like an opened and like some meat taken out thing of cold meat. And just throw it in there. Enjoy the spam. Or like some, some like, some, uh, you know, like noodles. Hmm. Like halfway open noodles. Just throw it in throw there. A and cup be of like, noodles. Happy Halloween. Yes. <laughs> just shut the door. And you just watch the spaz out. Because we rented the home, right? So like whatever they're going to do, they're going to do. It's not on us. Like, you know, it is what it is. But again, that's a different time. Now it is home invasion. Like, yeah, know, they come in. I don't think they even say trick or treat. They just see who's dumb enough to open the door for the children of America today. See, yeah. can, can I do an old man thing? Again? Yeah, let's get it. So, in my day, oh, good. And specifically, like trick or treating in my grandparents' neighborhood in Kingston, uh, Pennsylvania. <clears throat> when you went to somebody's door, there was an expectation that you did something. You know, these are like old school. Folks. Oh, you wanted the trick. They get no, the fuck out. No, of here. like you asked for the trick. I didn't ask for anything. Wait, what? They the, asked you to do something. Like the whole neighborhood did this. Like, like you what? come in and like recite the pledge of allegiance, or oh, something oh, like that. You You're for? kidding. No, I wasn't asking for it. They like demanded it of it, like for you to get like the candy. No way. Yeah, oh. it's kind of like a cool little thing in the neighborhood. So they could ask you anything if there were like three questions. And yeah. if you didn't answer them right, you got no candy. Well, yeah, it's just a little interaction. You always got candy. Then you egg the shit out of their house? No. No. You couldn't do that because they Because it's you. grandma's neighborhood, man. And if somebody asked you to <laughs> and if somebody asked you to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, the last thing you do want is fuck with their you house. You can't. You can't. You can't. They're do coming that. out. They're coming yeah. out of the house. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Did you guys ever have that? Never had any of that. You you'd just go to the door, they'd ask, What were you? As to make conversation, yeah. you say trick or treat. They give you candy. You walk to the next door. It's all very transactional. Oh. I had a different the dentist. The dentist might give you a, a miniature toothpaste. You Come know. on, you really got that? I've got yeah. The, the dent. I've I've had a dentist give me a miniature toothpaste and a toothbrush. I was at one of my friends' neighborhoods when I was a kid. They get um, that back at them though, don't they? 
That's your no, duty you just, as a kid. Is yeah, to, you just you just leave it in the you leave it in the bag, and then you come home. The obligatory questions from your parents about now you got to check that candy. You never know what somebody might put into it. Yeah. Oh yeah, remember that? that See, I, what I don't understand. Why would a dentist give you a toothbrush? I mean, that seems bad for business. Yeah. You think he'd want to give you caramel? Yeah, he's like looking candy forward to corn, it. like anything that's going to get deep into the ridges of your molars. Well, he doesn't and create care. cavities. He doesn't care because he's going to tell you he got a problem regardless. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he just he just wants you to know his name. That's all. Uh, just 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 know his name. Yeah, it's the old uh, the the car mechanic. Yeah. Uh, you need an oil change and also $5,000 of repairs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'll All tell right. you, there's always the house that gives you a king-size candy bar. Yeah. And yeah. then that and, is your favorite house. Every, you everybody remembers it. I can still drive back through my neighborhood where I grew up, and I know exactly the house that gave out the king-size candy bars. Before we get to our interview, Smug, no ghosts? Absolutely not. No. no. That's, I mean, you got another side up. You yeah, draw, another you, side. You draw, draw a hard line between aliens and ghosts. Yeah, all of it's fake. I mean, the thing is, is that the folks in control have created so many problems for us. They'd rather we talk about ghosts and the horrible shit they're doing to us. Mm. It's a psyop. Another psyop. It's just like Taylor Absolute Swift. Psyop. You got big into Total this psyop. lately. Oh, yeah, it's all true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, you're becoming a psycho. It's all psyops. <laughs> it's all psyops. Psyops all the way down. <laughs> He's going to be just rocking in a corner here before years end. Everyone will be like, Smug is right. That's what happens. All the conspiracy theories. Five years later, well, shit. We just found right. him in the corner muttering psyop, psyop, psyop. <laughs> Show me the blueprints. Yeah. Show me the blueprints. He's like How Howard Hughes. <laughs> I love it. All right. So we're going to get to our interview. This is Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. Well, with the world in the terrific state that it's in, uh, we always like to reach out to smart people and figure out sort of what we're missing and some things that, from a conservative perspective, we ought to be focusing on that perhaps we're not. Uh, and to do that, we go to the Heritage Foundation often. And with this, we'll go to the president of the Heritage Foundation, Kevin Roberts. Welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan. Unfortunately, you've not found a smart person, but I, <laughs> I do have some opinions. <laughs> so I think we'll have a good time. <laughs> we went looking for one. What happened? No, I know you got a lot of smart people. Got a lot of smart there. people at Heritage. Yeah, totally. Well, we set the bar pretty low on our end. So yeah, you, you know, don't have to. You'll clear it. Don't worry. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I made my day. You're Thanks look, for having me. You're going to look like a genius in no time. Uh, well, listen, thank you, and thank you for supporting the, our uh, our little program that could over the years. We appreciate the partnership that we've had with you guys. And, you know, one of the things that I find most useful about what it is that you guys do is the world gets captured by all kinds of different narratives, and, you know, we all get focused on one thing, and then we lose sight of other important stuff. And I was thumbing through some some reports that you guys were doing over the last couple of weeks, and I just, I'm impressed at your ability over there to stay focused on like the economy for example everybody's focused on obviously what's happening internationally but also you know we get dragged into personality wars and whatnot but there's an awful lot of policy that's been made in the last couple of years and you guys keep track of that stuff and so where are we <laughs> on well on the economy and then i'll make a, a larger point i think to the heart of, of what you're getting at on the economy i was telling you before we we started Late last week, or last few days, I contacted a few of our economists just on my own. You know, I didn't go through the heritage bureaucracy right. to get the official president's opinion. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather just know, you know, if I have reached a dumb conclusion that only I know that. Right. So I emailed a couple of them and uh, I said, please tell me that my understanding of the economy 
is wrong. It had something to do with treasury rates and oh, bond consumption and all yeah. this and the Chinese dumping it. And, you know, I'm just a lowly historian, so there's not too much that I can make sense of there. They wrote back and said, no, you're spot on and it's terrible uh, and we ought to be worried. Yeah. Having said that, two things. The first is you can always trust Americans to get it right. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is a challenging era in American history. I, I started one of our weekly meetings at Heritage this morning by saying, look, this is a challenging season mm-hmm. in American history. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be so permanently. And that doesn't mean that we have to to just shun some hard decisions that need to be made, especially by political leaders in this city. But it's incumbent on us at Heritage, as well as a lot of other friends around the country, mm-hmm. just to speak reality truthfully. Mm-hmm. And, and that way we diagnose the problem so we can fix it. Ultimately for us, the work we do is about leading Americans back to the good life. Yeah. And there's a lot in the way of the good life. But if we can, in D.C. and in state capitals, but also in our own homes, remember that the reason we're on this earth is to live the good life, to treat our families well, our neighbors well, our friends, even our political opponents to the extent that we can in this crazy environment. Then when we have real enemies like the Iranians, Let's go give them hell. Yeah. Yeah. I look very, very well said. I think that actually is a pretty good segue. Let's get to know you a little bit. What's Uh-oh. your background? What's what? How did you get into this mess? I don't know. You know, I was just minding my business in uh, the, the great country known as Texas. When uh, Heritage came calling, I had, had been leading the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I am a history professor by training. Yeah. But more important than that, you know, I'm just a redneck. Uh, <laughs> Rednecks in academia, though, are not. I didn't not last a, long. Yeah, there's not a yeah. ton of them. I, I remember I had my, my tenure track job. I'm an early American historian. I was at this big public university, and I went in to talk to my department head, who was a communist. I mean, he absolutely was a communist, but we were great friends. It's great if they just tell you that in academia, right? Yeah, yeah you had to hunt around in politics. No, there, they just, I mean, once, he, once like, he got tenure, you on, know? Yeah, once he got tenure, like, Ken Hammond, communist. <laughs> he remains one of my great friends because we, we shared a love for the outdoors and the same beer at the little microbrewery down the street where we often had political debates. But I went in and I said, Ken, um, I think I'm going to leave this job. And I'm going to go back to real America. And he said, oh, don't do that. You're, you teach well. You research well. We actually even love you as a colleague. <laughs> I, said, I said, no, man, I, I've just had enough. He said, Roberts, didn't you know what you were getting into as a conservative? I said, yeah, but I thought I could win you all over. Yeah. <laughs> thought I was that persuasive. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so, they're hubris once again. So, did, But did you always have this sort of profound... I mean, American history obviously comes with somewhat of an upbringing. You have to have an appreciation that for that at a young age in order to get into it at the level that you obviously have. But, you know, politics must have been something that you were interested in at a pretty early age. Yeah, it was. I, my grandparents helped raise me. Uh, they met in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother, who was four foot 11, 95 pounds, was in the Marine Corps oh, in World man. War II. And she met my grandfather, who didn't speak English as a native language. He was a, a Cajun from Louisiana. He was speaking English by the time they met, thankfully, <laughs> because she was from Illinois. But they met in the engine well of the, the airplane that he worked on the engine of, huh. and she installed the radar equipment for. And they fell in love and got married and had my mom and three additional siblings. But the point is, when they were helping raise me in the 1970s and 80s, his patriotism, he had an eighth grade education, <laughs> one of the smartest men I've known, but not in terms of formal education, and her being raised in Illinois, you know, Lincoln State, she couldn't be a Republican in Louisiana. She literally yeah, couldn't register couldn't, that way, but right. she was a Republican. And so I grew up 
loving Ronald Reagan, <laughs> even before he was president. You know, he did these, these, yeah, oh, these yeah. little radio clips in the 70s, and I was a little boy, but listening to that and also listening to the rhetoric, that kind of thing kind of seeps into your bloodstream. Yeah. And so I've, I have always been a conservative who also loves American history because for her, being from Illinois, you know, moving to this foreign land, Louisiana, she thought that the best way that someone could be grateful for everything they have, even if it's not a lot materially, we yeah. were very poor, was to recognize you, you're waking up in America. Mm. And and that gratitude to this very moment that we're sitting here is something that I'm most passionate about. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, particularly in this time that we're sitting here, because it seems like there are an awful lot of our fellow Americans who've lost sight of that. They have. And, you know, I've been in the classroom having taught mostly college and high school, but literally every grade level, and mostly history and civics. And what I've seen over the last 10 years, mostly as a policy person now, is that Americans, too many Americans don't love this country mm-hmm. because you can't love what you don't know. Mm-hmm. That's bad, but the, the flip side of that, the good news is we can get them there by just teaching them well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we could, you know, going back to heritage policy, we can go back to having a good curriculum and as we believe, I'm sure you all agree, universal school choice. We yeah. can save this country. It, 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 believe it or not, in it, spite of your, then we got to go. Show, we got to go work it, on the higher yeah, education. Yeah, too. it doesn't start oh, with man. politics, right? Yeah. It actually starts with the decisions we're making for our kids in in the classrooms that they're in. Really got uh, really got our work cut out for us in higher education and in grade school. I mean, I just saw this poll on Twitter. We were talking about it before the show that said that between the ages of 18 and 24, a majority of that group thinks that Hamas was justified in what they're doing in Israel. Like, I, I, I was blown away. It's astonishing. If, if you look at the total population, of course, it's like 75% or something like that against. But, like, that age group is just, where is that coming from? And it's it's got to be coming from just they're programmed in the wrong way. Yeah, and you, you can look at two things. The first is you can look at specific classes or, or course material, mm. certainly for uh, – college classes and realize that's part of the problem. But to your point, it's actually bigger than that because it's what we're not teaching. So it isn't, in other words, like the nonsense neo-Marxist stuff that mm-hmm. some of these faculty members are teaching. It's that that finds fertile soil, these college students' brains and hearts, because of what for a generation in the United States we haven't taught, which is not that America is perfect, but it is the last best hope for mankind. It yeah. is the most noble experiment in civil society in the history of humankind. Just go ask 95% of the people who inhabit planet Earth. Mm-hmm. We haven't taught that. And so, therefore, if you're not good, then you must be bad. <laughs> and I think we're going to be able to, to reverse this in less than a decade if we get serious about fixing that problem, which is speaking about this country, warts and all, our political differences mm-hmm. and all, as a place where still most of the Earth, if they could snap their finger, they would want to wake up here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so insidious about the left sort of erasure of American history writ large, right, is that you can't actually improve anything if you don't understand our past and how we've gotten to where we are and note the improvement and note how you can go from there. I mean, I imagine that that almost everything that you've encountered in your history hat background has been just an affront to what's been happening here in our 
sociological commentary over the last yeah, four it's, years. It's really sad. And I'll, I'll tell you one example, um, if I may, and it's it has to do with a presidential candidate, but it's you know it's neither an endorsement nor a non-endorsement. have to say that caveat right Yeah, right. <laughs> but you, you will remember over the summer that there was all this controversy about the African-American history curriculum in mm-hmm. Florida. Yeah. And it got politicized because the governor of Florida is running for president. And my specialty actually is not just early American history, it's early African-American history. Even hmm. though as you're sitting here with me, you know I'm a I wouldn't have guessed white that. guy. And a conservative, but it's, you know, it's my professional expertise. And I said, well, you know, what did they do wrong in Florida? So I spent an afternoon, probably longer than I should have, (laughs) but I don't get to geek out in history too much anymore. So staff had gone home. I'm sitting in my office at Heritage and I'm I'm reading through this and I realized this curriculum is awesome. (laughs) You know what the controversy was? There was this practice under slavery. I'll make this quick, but it's important where some slaves, if they were skilled, could be hired out by their owner to make some money on their own. Now their owner, you know, very unjustly kept some of that money, mm-hmm. this was slavery. But some slaves, in fact, tens of thousands of slaves bought their own freedom mm. with that money from hiring out. All that curriculum did was say, even amid all of the oppression, tragedy, evil of American servitude, there were some slaves who persevered so much they were able to overcome some of that. It wasn't celebrating that there right. was something called hiring out. Obviously, any common sense reading of this indicated that. But because we don't have the knowledge, because we immediately thought the worst, even though this curriculum was written in 2023 by African-American scholars, it had to be this controversy. That's something. Mm-hmm. that We've followed that pretty closely, and we're similarly irritated by all of it. Uh, let, me, let me ask you, I mean, you were right to say that if he wasn't running for president, we probably wouldn't have even raised it as an issue. But of course, there's cottage industries on all sides. I've noticed that. Uh, yeah. Um, so that leads to this larger question. We're obviously all witness to what's happening in the House of Representatives here over the last couple of weeks, and we don't have a Republican speaker with a very thin majority either way. How do we start bringing people together, at least starting in our own backyard, uh, with people who love this country and want to celebrate the conservative roots of it? How do, how do we begin to sort of encircle everyone to make sure that we're all rowing in the same direction again? The best advice I have, and, and, and I mean it, it's not false modesty. It may not be the best advice, but it's the best advice I have, and, and not to do this gratuitously, but to remind the Republican conference what's at stake mm-hmm. and, and the tragedy that is happening to Israel present tense. It's really a tragedy that's happening to us in the United States. That ought to override whatever differences there exist inside that conference. I know that's easier for me to say than for them to practice because we've all gotten into those that kind of sparring, right? And sometimes it gets kind of personal and it's it's very personal for some of the members, but I think we can appeal to their better angels. We can appeal to something that every Republican in that conference, every single Republican in that conference agrees with, which is that we have to defend Israel. Hopefully not with American troops or an inordinate amount of resources, but if so, so be it. And I think recognizing that ought to get them to a quick vote. And then they can start working on, you know, through a list of priorities, things on which there's almost the same kind of significant agreement. But ultimately, this is the same conference that mustered 218 votes for the best, most conservative border security bill in American history. They've done this this year, like five or six months ago. And so what we've been trying to do at Heritage is remind everyone, this this is a members deal. There's been a lot of pressure on the outside over the last couple of weeks, and it's most important that the members make the best decision. Obviously, at Heritage, we're hoping for the most conservative of those those members, but whoever it is, we're going to work with them because we understand what's at stake, too. I think that 
Interestingly, by recognizing how high the temperature is in the world, especially if you're in the right. Middle East, helps to lower the temperature here and hopefully get us to a consensus. And if that speaker designate and then speaker is someone who's got real legislative skills, as frankly Kevin McCarthy does, yeah. I, we're, we're cautiously optimistic but that they can get back to work. How do we get to consensus when it seems like, and I think this is always, this isn't just a Republican problem, it's a party out of power problem, but how do you get to consensus when your conference, at least enough members of it, sort of reject incremental victory, you know, where it's sort of like my way or the highway, everything or nothing. Because, I mean, like, look, <clears throat> there are a lot of incentives aligned in our politics for claiming that everybody has failed you yeah, right. and you need to donate to me because I'm the I've only one who's really yeah, fighting. That's something. This is like the politics of purity uh, that leads to dollars in the bank account. So, I know that's a big question, but like, question. but like, how do you solve that in a, in a period in which our majority is so small and the political moment feels so big? And I worry, like, do we have the will to solve those problems at a time in which we are so divided? That is an open question, um, whether we have the, I should say the Republican conference has the will to do that. And the, a lot of the fundraising is as distasteful to me as it is to you. I will say this so that I, I don't so that I resist the temptation to name names, um, which is which is not my job. But I'll make the observation: that the American people, that is to say, the American conservative base, are fed up with us. Yeah. Stop sending fundraising emails and go do your damn job. Yeah. And what that means is go elect a speaker, and get about the people's business. That's going to require the kind of open conversations that apparently existed over the last several days. Mm -hmm. That was therapeutic. It needed to happen. And who knows who emerges. There will be a speaker. Yeah. yeah. There will be a speaker because it's almost like a law of physics. But having said that, because uh, I want to key in on your great question about the the purity and incrementalism, when I got made the switch from higher ed to public policy, people expected me to be a purist. You know, when I led a small Catholic college against Obamacare and then against federal student loans and grants, people said this guy's coming in as an idealist, which I am. He's a purist. And I realized that's not how you get legislation done, mm. which is not to fall prey to an equally bad evil, which is when you could get much more, a much yeah. more ambitious piece of legislation. Preemptive surrender. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So I get that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm the president of heritage. We definitely <laughs> oh, yeah. get that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I've become fond of this notion that I call radical incrementalism. And hopefully the credibility that Heritage has as a conservative institution, whatever credibility I have in my career as a purist, would offer some encouragement to the most conservative members of the Republican conference, many of them, some of my best friends on earth, go get what you can, and then pick those one or two issues like the border bill, yeah. where we yeah. do want the whole enchilada. Yeah. And it gives you more credibility. And interestingly, as y'all know better than anybody, even more fundraising success down the road. Right. Yeah, because success begets success in that. In that. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that, because I think that's the one thing where Democrats have definitely, over the last 20 years, eaten our lunch. I mean, you see them creating low-income entitlements for children. And then you see, you know, obviously, Medicare, we've got entitlements for seniors. And then you just sort of gradually increase the eligibility and then you add a little medicaid piece and like Great before example. you know it you're actually just fighting over like a tiny sliver of the population that you're somehow calling free market health care and you somehow. know it's like uh yeah they just did it you know and they did it under everybody's noses and i think that is an area whether it's immigration whether it's border stuff 
which I do think we've gotten back to where we need to be. And I, I agree with your assessment of what the House has done and, frankly, what was done during the Trump administration. But there are a whole host of other issues there that I think we can make substantive, significant progress on. I'm glad to hear you say that because I think heritage plays an outsized role in getting very conservative members who are also very serious people on the same page to try to get some legislative outcomes. Well, yeah, you know, in the sorry, I'll I'll be quick in in the in the eternal contest between show horses and workhorses. Yeah. We like the workhorse. Yeah, of the that's right. That's well, I just right. I just wish sometimes when it comes to things like entitlements or domestic priorities that we had the same long view that the conservative movement has had on things like the Supreme Court. Yeah. Where we knew like this majority of constitutionalists on the bench wouldn't get there overnight. Like it would be a 40 year project. And if we looked at the rest of our policy in that same way as a movement, I feel like we'd be so much more successful because we could take those incremental wins and be like, all right, we'll come back tomorrow and we'll get more. Yeah, that's an excellent example. And, and if I were pressed to, to come up with one policy issue outside of, of the great work that conservative has done on the judiciary, where we've seen radical incrementalism work, it's an education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, right. Th that's the issue that drew me out of higher ed into public policy work you know, for, for reasons that are understandable given my career. But, you know, 10 years ago, it looked like we were just getting bunt singles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now, especially after Yunkin's victory in Virginia and his tapping into that, if, if Heritage believes in a certain state that's kind of purple, quote unquote, all we can get is a parental bill of rights, give us that all day long, yeah. because we know we can build on that in the next session. The, the, it's your point, success begets success. The more of this we become comfortable with, we realize that just because you're engaging in this incrementalism doesn't mean that you're forsaking a much bigger victory. It actually means you might be, depending on the issue, increasing your ability to get it sooner. Mm -hmm. And I realize in the now almost two years that I've been at Heritage, the more we can say that, given that people know we're not squishy, we're not part of the establishment, we'll work with anybody, but we are purists. Yeah. But we also want to get legislation passed, and we want to kill the bad stuff. And And I think the movement from this really low point that we're in right now as it as related to the house republican issue i think we can emerge from that too and and ultimately we're going to have to mm -hmm. if we're going to take back the country yeah i mean it's the only way to get there i've long since lost faith in a democratic vision for this country uh so let's uh, let's talk a little politics I and mean, i know you got to like be careful about this area but i'm supposed to be yeah <laughs> but i also know you've got some opinions um how important is 24 I won't use the word existential. It's not quite that. But I've said for years now that the United States has two presidential election cycles to get back on course. Yeah. And that's more Kevin the historian than Kevin the policy leader speaking, although with a little bit that I've learned about policy in the last decade, that's true too. If you think about what's going to happen with some of our biggest safety net programs by the end of this decade, right. you can be a former president not wanting to talk about those things you're going to have to talk about them if you're the next president. Thank they're you. They're going God bankrupt. Bless, period. God bless you. No, look, I'm a policy guy. But the, the ultimately, if 24 doesn't go well for conservatives, and I'm not just talking about the presidency or even just the House and Senate, but if we don't pick up state legislative yeah. seats, if we don't have conservatives winning county commissioner seats, school board seats, we're going to be down to one election probably in mm -hmm. 2028. And, and I would always rather essentially win the game in the bottom of the eighth and the bottom of the ninth, yeah, even though the lot. bottom of the ninth is kind of fun. I don't want to do that with the country. I think we're almost there. And interestingly, I'll just add this postscript. I, I spent a lot of time outside DC with regular people, uh, people who support heritage. 
and they think the same thing. Mm, and yeah. you know, it's what my friend Larry Arn would say. It's what Winston Churchill said about Americans. You want to know? Just go ask an everyday American. They'll yeah. tell you what the truth is. Yeah, I mean, there's real palpable fear. It's out palpable there. everywhere. Yeah. Every every kind of person. You know, someone high net worth, someone not high net worth, working class, upper class, middle class, red state, blue state, yeah. purple state. Americans know it, and and I think we ought to trust them. Meet their emotional mood, and mm -hmm. not in some manipulative way, which is part of politics. I understand, but in the way of saying, here's the plan step by step yeah. that we gets us out of this mess. And I think if our candidates do that in 2024, I'll be reasonably hopeful that it will go well. Well, Lord knows you're helping along the way, making sure everybody's got the right material to do that. Uh, we ask all every guest that comes on three questions. All right. And I'm interested in yours as a Texas guy. Uh, the first question is, if you can plan your last meal on earth, what would it be? Oh, my favorite food uh, growing up on the Gulf Coast, chicken and sausage gumbo. Oh, wow. cow, you got a straight Creole on it. That's good. I like that. I love a gumbo. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's basically gumbo weather as we sit here. Yeah, it really yeah. is love, basically. Love good soup weather. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, second question is, with the benefit of retrospect, having spent your entire career, academia, now public policy, benefit of retrospect, you see a bright blue sky of, of possibilities you can do absolutely anything with. What would you do? What would you do with it? Would you do what, anything different? What's my time horizon over the last... Yeah, let's just say your professional career. Uh, I wouldn't do anything different other than ask my wife to marry me sooner than I did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she said I waited about six months too late. So, All right. Thankfully, it was just six months. Uh, 27 years later. Um, I mean, she's can, still telling you that. 27 years later. There's, there's something. The one thing I would do, and it sounds a little silly considering the tragedy in the world and um, and you know even the, non, the, the difficulties here in D.C., is have take more time to be to have more fun yeah like in graduate school or when you're you know you're climbing the climbing the career ladder people who are political types hill staff can relate to this you know go to, i should have gone to a world series game when my atlanta braves won it oh in 95 no should have gone to more texas longhorn games you, you you develop this uh this really good hindsight once you're a parent and you encourage your children to go do that but that's the one thing i would change but in terms of career and other big life choices i've been a very blessed guy so i'm feel, more grateful feel like you hit the nail on the head with that well that's good and that's good advice too i totally i think that all the time although i've had some fun i've had some yes fun. we've we've on the variety program we're not adverse to fun good speaking <laughs> of speaking of fun since yeah. we've got a guy from texas oh yeah i think we should throw out our fourth optional question that we mm -hmm. we throw out sometimes um you know, we've noticed that the animal kingdom is kind of rising up against humanity. <laughs> We're very concerned about it here at the Ruth Heritage Variety should, Program. You should have a whole wing on. We all exactly. have a, have a center on this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what we're asking everybody is, what can you do to fight back? And so, what we'd like to know is, what is the biggest animal that you could take on mano a mano? Bare hands. A small alligator. Oh, oh yeah, that's pretty good. Nice. Small. Yeah. Look, I I used to lead. Um, during full moons uh, in the Chafalaya Basin, what we call Howl at the Moon canoe trips. Okay. And it's mostly people from the north who are already scared because they're in Louisiana. Everyone talks funny and they eat all kinds of things you can't identify. Uh -huh. This is my college job. And I would take them out with, with a guy who has a real Cajun accent. And, and we would be in these little kayaks or canoes, sometimes with two eyes that were like a foot apart, it seemed. Wow. I remember one lady from New Hampshire saying, Kevin, what is that? I said, ma'am, that's about a 16-foot alligator. <laughs> <laughs> so not a 16-foot alligator. <laughs> well, you could take a small one. I'll take a small one. What, yeah. What's your strategy? You sneak up 
behind it and, and sort of clamp down or what do we step thinking? on the tail and yeah. go for the neck wow yeah and, and even then the thing might still get you but you know we're talking no taller than us okay <laughs> yeah okay. um i might have been tempted to try during one of my fun times <laughs> <laughs> well you didn't actually lay one down no that would have been fun something though <laughs> that would have been we may have That'd be quite a story. That. <laughs> that would be quite a story. All right, but I'm going to put you down. We have not had an alligator. We haven't. No, it's good. Yeah, that's we need solid. that. All right. So the last question is: Our view is most successful people. This is like 95 percent are motivated by one of two things: either the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. And it's not that anybody likes to lose or anybody doesn't like to win. It's like what leads them up the ladder to the next challenge. Where's that inner motivation? And our, you know, the guy that we've always said embodies the agony of defeat is Michael Jordan, who every title he ever had, he celebrated for like five minutes. But like, you know, you insult him in this handshaking line and he holds on to that like, you know, forever, forever. Uh, and there's a number of athletes kind of fall in that category. But then on the other side, you've got a whole bunch of not necessarily sunny optimists, but people who think that they can just do do something more than they're doing. And they, they're driven by their ability and their confidence in their own self to push forward and get something done that other people didn't think they could do. So that's the two poles. Great question. Um, I've certainly had my periods of being motivated by the agony of defeat, um, but because for most of my childhood and uh, teenage years, I was a sore loser. I had to have a football coach. <laughs> make me do enough sprints to get out of that. And I was an offensive lineman. Um, I'm very motivated by the thrill of victory, and I really look forward to going to spike a football, literally, uh, outside the gates of the White House lawn so I'm not arrested by the Secret Service <laughs> when uh, when we score some serious victories over the next couple of years. And I think that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. And like I said, it's probably a 50-50 proposition. Yeah. You'd be surprised that some of the people that show up as the agony defeat guy, you're like, yeah. No, I, I totally get it. I'm not I'm not totally either you know on, on the side of the thrill of victory because I hate losing yeah. to this day. Yeah. So it, it's a motivation. But I've learned. But they ran it out of you. Yeah, it's, it's such a negative emotion. I don't want to do that running again. I want to spike the football and be done. Yeah. I love that. All right, so our last deal, for all the people who are listening in and want to help out or want to just stay up to date with what you guys are working on, where do they go? Uh, obviously, go to our website, heritage.org, but y'all know the currency of the realm is Twitter uh, or X, and so they can follow Heritage or Heritage Action there or me at Kevin Roberts TX. And I just really want to say thanks for what y'all doing. And I've uh, been looking forward to being on your show. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming. The Heritage Foundation President, Kevin Roberts, thank you for coming in. You bet. Thanks. Thank you. So good, interesting guy. I mean, uh, look, I've seen the Heritage Foundation in many forms. And I've agreed with them on many things, most things. I'd say probably 90%. And I've disagreed with them vehemently on other things. Uh, and I've seen some leadership be more effective than others. I happen to think that this guy's pretty effective. Mm -hmm. um, he He's a, a thoughtful guy, as you could tell when you asked him the question, Duncan, about... Incrementalism. Incremental and, yeah. gains. Like yeah. the fact that he sought that through and has an answer to it, I think is really important because there were previous, not the immediate previous, but there were previous administrations of the Heritage Foundation that were, uh, like to say dumb fucks is to... <laughs> is to is to like lower the bar for dumb fuckery like this was this was the authors of the just defund obamacare and obama will sign it and repeal his greatest legislative accomplishment type thing and like that was a 
somebody who just doesn't understand legislative strategy and doesn't understand how to actually make conservative policy work and how to win. They've moved off of that over the years. And I think this guy in particular, Roberts, gets this mm -hmm. and understands that it doesn't mean to be any less of a conservative to have hard points of view, but take wins where you can get them. Mm -hmm. And also get out into the community and actually listen to people and you don't have like six people sitting around a conference room devising a way to screw over yep. their like, you know, political enemies, which yep. this guy has gotten out of that. And they've done a really, really good job, I think, at bringing a whole bunch of people in. Now, there's still many things that I may disagree with, but again, 90 plus percent I agree with. And I think that they have done, like, and the stuff that they're pushing forward, some of the most effective mm -hmm. work that I've seen Heritage do in a very, very long time. Yeah, I like that he's from Texas. I like that he has a background as a history professor, and we talked about it in our interview with him. We've talked about it on the show. One of our biggest problems in this country is a higher education system that is closed off to literally half of the country's point of view on everything. And that has to change, and it's going to take time for something like that to change. And there is no better way to start changing it than with somebody who's seen it from the inside leading an organization like Heritage. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm glad that they're a partner of ours on a lot of different issues. And I, you know, as we disagree and agree, we can talk about them because he's a real guy. And his staff is too, by the way. They're absolutely terrific people that you can get information from and they can give you and you can disagree and have an ongoing conversation without being political enemies on things that is really important because as we were talking about in the greater context of bringing this republican party together post-primary and in this speaker's race and everything out absolutely imperative absolutely imperative glad we did it um glad to have them fellas i think we did it i think so absolute banger of an episode Jonathan, thank you so much to our guests. Thank you so much to our listeners. Like Holmes mentioned earlier, if you have not subscribed yet on YouTube, be sure to do so. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.